Welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, and joining me this week, I have a very special returning guest to cover a a bona fide cult classic. But before we get into our guest, I just want to remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Blind Knowledge Collective at www.blindknowledge.com. It is your one-stop shot for amazing, interesting, and inventive podcasts and videocasts from around the world. If you like some quirky kind of things and you want to find out, uh, please check out the Blind Knowledge Collective, www.blindknowledge.com. The Cult Film Companion is also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that collects the latest trending topics from around the world and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. Stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow topics as specific as you would like, from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians to movies. Try Newsly today at www.newsly.me. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 different countries. Our podcast, Cold Film Companion, is, of course, there as a featured podcast. And please use the promo code C-U-L-T-F-1-L-M. Cult Film, drop the I, pop in a one, and get a month free of Newsly's premium subscription. Follow the Cult Film Companion on Twitter at Cult Film Comp, C-O-L-T-F-I-L-M-C-O-M-P. That is also where you can find us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group, The Cult Film Companion. Shoot us recommendations for movies. We love to get that. And we love to get feedback about the episodes. And joining me this week is a returning guest, Mr. Austin Trunick. Welcome back to The Cult Film Companion. Hey, thanks for having me back, Chris. I really appreciate it. And last time we talked a little bit of uh, canon, and you are the guy to go to for canon films. And you had previously, when we first talked, had were working on the Canon Film Guide Volume 2, which has now been released. Give us a little taste, a little tease of what people can find in Volume 2 of the Canon Film Guide. Well, yeah, like I said, just landed, uh, just hit online last week, and this book is, it's, it's massive. Um, I thought my first one, when it was, was published, was big, but this one is almost double in size. It's, it's over a thousand pages. Wow. It covers, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a doorstop. You can, uh, you can <laughs> curl this thing and get a good workout. But yeah, a thousand pages. It covers sixty movies for, uh, between the years nineteen eighty five and eighty seven, which was really Canon's peak era during under Golden Globus when 
a lot of the movies that we associate, people associate with them now with Over the Top, the American Ninja films, Life Force, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, all the Toby Hooper movies, um, Invasion USA, the Delta Force, stuff like that all came out in this very, uh, very, well, it's three years, which is, which is crazy to think about. This was a period in time when Canon was juggling more more films at once than I think any any human being be, human beings beyond Golden Globus could really wrap their wrap their brains around. Yeah, but, that's yes. that's that's huge <laughs> for a three year period. Just imagine that. That's less than uh, a a stint at college or in high school, and they're releasing what fifty. 50 plus movies yeah yeah it's and this this volume doesn't even include things that were covered in the first book because in uh, i grouped things together in the uh franchises so so the first book would cover all the death wish movies because the first one came out during those between 80 and 84 which is just which is just wild because this is <laughs> this book is a thousand it, it, it runs a thousand pages, uh, just just nutty. But there are forty interviews in this one. That's what really made this one so much bigger than the the first volume. Once once that one landed, and I think people it got it got some good attention, and I think it convinced a lot of the people I'd reached out to for interviews that this was a real project. This was something that they could get behind. So I started hearing back from interview subjects that I never thought I'd lucky enough to speak to which which is exciting it's i i'm really glad to get this this book out there and share a lot of these interviews and stories with with the uh with other canon fans out there so with um hopefully with the success um which i'm sure that you'll happen because i mean this project has got a lot of feet like you said i mean we're already on to volume two um hopefully um, maybe volume three is uh, any talks about that, or am I looking too I, far into the future? I've been working on it. Okay, all right, fair <laughs> enough. For a while now, so I'm yeah. This the volume three is going to cover. I, I kind of think of the 1988 onward as uh, Canon's kind of straight to video period. They mm. had really fallen apart by those later years and ran into a lot of financial issues, but they still had a few late hits and cult classics. I think of Bloodsport being the, the biggest one to come out of those years. Right, right. So, to, it's, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just think the, the, the thing that I'm most, something that really excites me beyond talking about Van Damme and, and especially in, in those ones are the, there's, there's, there's going to be a section in it. Canon was very famous for advertising movies, announcing them, taking out ads in the trade papers and making mocked up posters projects that really didn't exist yet they would pre-sell those and once enough distributors cable companies vhs companies had expressed interest and agreed to distribute it then they would go and make the movie then they kind of did things backwards can you can you just off the top of your head can you name a couple of those uh kind of backwards produced movies for us oh i mean all (laughs) almost everything that canon that came out of Canon directly was was homegrown. There was kind of sold backwards like oh, that. Okay. <laughs> but most most famously, uh, End of Midnight, uh, the the Charles Bronson movie. Um, but their their second movie they made with him. When they went to make that film, they didn't have a script for Bronson. They didn't have a project. They just had a title, 
and Bronson's people agreed to let them go ahead and advertise it. They made up this poster about it's Charles Bro- drawing a Charles Bronson in front of a globe, uh, like holding a gun. You know, very typical, like Charles Bronson. Sure. Um, it looks it makes it look like it's an international terror, like but it's fighting a, terrorists around. It's a serial around, killer it's a, movie. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's, it, there's no mention of a. It's the most generic poster, and all they had was the, the title Ten at Midnight, which actually doesn't have anything to do with the final movie, but Canon took this, they took this to the American film market, they took it to the Cannes Film Festival, and they sold it. And they, you know, they had, what, how Canon worked is if they sold $10 million worth of distro deals for for a film they would go and make it for five to seven million and <laughs> and use the extra money to fund yet another film like that so it's that, that was that's that's one that's very famous because that had nothing people all the like the theater chains and distribution companies it had cable deals before it had a script mm. which is wild to think about that's a movie that I only just recently saw, and I would say that's probably one of the more underrated Charles Bronson movies. It's, and I'd like to see. I want to kind of see this mock-up original poster because, yeah, if you you think of a globe, you think of a gun, you think, oh, maybe is this like a James Bond globe-trotting <laughs> kind of adventure? No, it's a pretty, it's it's a pretty badass serial killer movie, and uh, I have yeah. to say, in their defense. 10 to Midnight's a pretty kick-ass title. Like, that's the kind of thing, like, <laughs> even if you just hear that, you're going to be like, all right, mm-hmm. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll check out 10 to Midnight. Um, yeah, slap that title on a, on a <laughs> sketch of Charles Bronson, and yeah, they'll they just start waiting for the checks to come in. <laughs> it worked we're, for them. So today, we're we're covering a movie that I guess, I mean, it has, when I just rewatched it, it, Cannon's name comes up at, at the beginning, but you, this is kind of a, uh, I guess, Cannon adjacent type film. It wasn't, and uh, we are, of course, talking about the original Highlander, which I, it was a series that I obviously was familiar with, I guess, kind of just through cultural osmosis i call it i was even familiar with the tagline there can be only one probably before i saw any of these movies and i i definitely didn't see these i've only seen i mean we're talking about a movie that spawned at the at the moment four sequels a tv show and an anime movie but this movie didn't do very well initially. It's definitely gone on to um, have great cult um, acclaim, and you know it it it, is, it does warrant having a cult status. Um, but I'm not sure kind of where I fell into the series because as I was rewatching this, the original again, I I'm it's. I'm enjoying it a lot more, so I'm thinking that I kind of was... I probably saw one of the later sequels, didn't really like it, and got kind of turned off to the series. I don't I don't even think I saw it until recently, this this original one, which um, I was able... I uh, got the Blu-ray with the director's cut so I could see exactly what, um, what the vision was. But can you talk a little bit, before we talk specifically about this movie, about your kind of relationship with the Highlander series as a whole where do you where did you come into this um this franchise 
Yeah, so this is a this is a I'm I'm glad you asked because this is a movie that's kind of uh followed followed me around at, at different parts uh, of my life. My my earliest memories of it are I when I was at uh, this is about middle school time. I'm guessing I'm probably like 12 or 13 years old. I my I was part of the group of kids that <laughs> we we played we would we would go to people's houses on the weekend. We played Dungeons and Dragons. It was very Stranger Things when you see these <laughs> young preteens playing, you know, in their basement. You know, right? Very very stereotypical. But that was my my friend who most often would be hosting on these like we'd all get off off the bus at his house on on Friday and play D and D all all the rest of the evening but he had a copy of highlander and i don't know if it was taped off of hbo or the movie channel i don't remember what cable channel but it was a taped off of tv copy of highlander and this was just something we all we all loved and i mean this is a movie that naturally i think preteen boys are gonna just lose their minds over when they when they see it you know you got swords and all kinds of awesome, <laughs> awesome stuff happening. So this was a movie that I very much takes me back to to that time. And I, I even talk about this a lot in the books. There, there are lots of movies that I write about canon because these are movies that I rent as a kid and I would rent with my friends at, around this age. But Highlander is just a movie that I watched a lot back then, <laughs> specifically at the sleepovers. But and I, you know, I get I get out of high school and later on I went to school. I, I went in New York City and then after I graduated my first apartment was out in Queens and the N train subway line in in New York which I would take to and from work every day it comes it goes from underneath like a tunnel underground and it goes above ground once it gets out to Queens and every day back and forth I would pass the Silver Cup Studios building like right by the train so where the climactic battle of highlander happens right right <laughs> it's just it that was that was one of the the coolest things I, I remember first time visiting the neighborhood when i was like looking for apartments and trying to see anywhere i could afford <laughs> i think that really sold me on, on on wanting to live out where i where i moved to is like oh shoot like i can see the the highlander <laughs> like the the highlander fight building every every time i go to and from work and that was always a, a great joy because it still would it would still be you know it'd be illuminated you can see it which is awesome <laughs> at, that, that is awesome um so the the original highlander is stars christopher lambert as Conard mcleod and I actually found this out from doing research for a previous episode from last week, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Kurt Russell was offered the role of Connor McLeod and turned it down to star in Big Trouble in Little China. And the director, Russell... I'm going to butcher his name. <laughs> Mulcahy... Mulcahy? And it's not. It mean it's an Australian name. I should probably know this, to you. but he found he came across a picture of he like came across a picture of Christopher Lambert had just been in um, Tarzan movie. Uh, I think it was called Greystroke or something, and that's how he ended up getting cast. And 
it turns out that I um, recently doing a deep dive. I was trying to find some Australian exploitation movies. I came across uh, Russell Russell's first movie called Razorback, which is a great underrated uh, horror movie. So check that out if you haven't. But the original story behind Highlander was it was a script and now correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong but uh Gregory Wyden who's um credited with the story and also was a co-writer of the screenplay along with two others wrote the script as an undergraduate assignment in his screenwriting class while he was at UCLA and based a lot of this um story on a Ridley Scott movie called The Duelists is that uh am I uh, somewhat on track there? Yeah, yeah, you're 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 completely on track. That was like 70, 1977, the Dulles. Yeah, uh, which yeah. is not a movie I've seen, but I'm a huge Ridley Scott fan, so I'm gonna have to go uh, search that one out. And uh, Mr. Wyden was paid two hundred thousand dollars for the script, and according to sources. The initial story was much more violent and was much darker than what we get here. And also, an interesting plot point that was changed was, I, I guess, in Gregory Wyden's original script, uh, the immortals could have children. And we're dealing with a, uh, people that... Are born immortal, and they there could be only one, and they kind of they they face each other throughout the years. I mean, we meet our hero. Well, we actually meet him first in New York City in '86 when this movie was released. But then the, we sh- were seeing lots of flashbacks to um, the Scottish Highlands in the uh, the 1500s, and so. The whole point, I guess, with these these people are is the only way that they can be killed is to be decapitated. And they kind of get this weird... It's I, The only thing that I could compare it to is kind of like the spidey sense that Spider-Man has when there's troubles happening. They kind of get this weird sense when there's another um, immortal around, around them. And the story follows... Uh, Connor McLeod throughout the years he's trained he learns who he's from and is trained by Sean Connery who seems to be having an absolute ball playing Juan Sanchez Villalobos <laughs> he seems to be having an absolute ball he's dressed up like a, a French Spaniard but at one point he does make reference to being Egyptian I think um, <laughs> yeah so he's having a ball, and he's killed about halfway through the movie through a, a gherkin, which is one of the, the more evil um, of these immortal races, uh, played, by Cla- played by Clancy Brown, who is just having a ball chewing up the scenery on this movie. He's oh, just a... Awesome, awesome villain in this. As a guy, uh, an actor has had so many great roles <laughs> through his career. This is just, yeah, such a fun one for him. Yeah, and I love how um, we get kind of 
we get the history a lot of um of of Connor McLeod and he's grown up and like he's got a, a fancy antique he's a fancy antique dealer with wealth that he's I mean he's been alive for thousands of years now so he's um kind of you know hoarded well not hoarded but he's earned this 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 wealth over the years we get flashbacks to some pretty interesting times um uh, mostly with him um when he finds out that he is a mortal he's he initially comes acro- across Gherkin uh Clancy Brown in a, in a battle <laughs> yeah in a battle and everyone thinks that he's dead it looks like i mean he's stabbed brutally and everyone thinks he's dead but you know like the next day he's fine and it i there th- these are the things i like about this movie instead of people in the village being like oh my god um like we've got a superhero or he's immortal and like like praising him or like being in awe of this they're scared the hell out of him <laughs> they want to burn him like he's a witch they think he's in cahoots with the devil uh so i mean it's a very interesting um there's a lot of little interesting things going on here and i like how that in the 80s uh connor mcleod's like a classy antiques dealer and Clancy Brown seems to have like embraced punk rock <laughs> and like dresses up in black leather uh and is cranking some 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 uh, some punk rock which is it's kind of in stark contrast to the rest of the music in this movie because the the lead the t- the title sequence we are introduced to a just a kickass song by Queen um <laughs> And Queen did a lot of uh, of the music, uh, you know. I I want to say it's Champions of the Universe is like the big song in the beginning, and uh, they've got some songs throughout. But this, along with they did a bunch of, they were just like a band for hire for like kind of weird sci-fi action movies because they also did music for Flash Gordon, I believe, amongst others. Um, but. I mean, like I said, this is kind of canon adjacent, so I'm going to uh, open up the floor to you. What was canon's involvement in this movie? Because this this seems to be a little bit... I mean, the budget for this was, I believe, around $19 million, and unfortunately only grossed about $12.8 million. Um, but, I mean, this doesn't seem like the kind of... Uh, bread and butter especially at the time that that canon was kind of putting their foot on uh was were dipping their toes into so what was their involvement in um the production of highlander well it is as far as the production really <laughs> really no, like practically nothing because okay. canon um canon became in very very late in the distribution actually for for Highlander, the the movie I believe was finished shooting in the summer of uh, 1985, mm-hmm. and it, it took them a while. They you know putting together the you know, the, the, the post product, the post production, the editing. There was a lot of going back and forth over cuts and things like that. But the distribution rights, and when, when they were putting up uh, 
trying to raise money to make the film, originally the producers, had been sold to Fox, 20th Century Fox in the U.S. So the movie had actually come out and was released in theaters by Fox in oh. um, March, March of 86. So if you would have seen it in theaters in its original release, which sadly not that many people no. did, the movie was a gigantic up in the in the U.S. and very critically uh, really torn apart, I think. Gene Siskel had gone on his show with Ebert and said it was the worst, one of the worst movies he'd ever seen in his life, which is crazy to think. Yeah, crazy to think. Well, little did he know Highlander 2 was coming. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I can at least think of 20 other movies that he had seen, the canon movies that he had seen and reviewed, and I'm like thinking, really? He thought those were better than Highlander? (laughs) But, yeah, so the movie had come out in the U.S. and it had been a commercial, critical kind of flop, but they were hoping, you know, it was still coming out in other places. But the company that had, really the, the production company they went through was Thorny MI, who was a major British company um, who they owned theaters, they had a very large film library, they had a production handle, and they owned Elstree Studios, which was the production sound stages and production facilities in in the UK that where all three Star Star Wars movies were shot, Rose of the Lost Ark, The Shining, um, Life Force, like all these big, huge, huge productions were, were shot there. They were going through some uh, really financial stress. And this is where Canon enters. This is this is where uh, <laughs> Canon Canon's very odd involvement in the the Highlander story. The Canon was really in the nineteen eighty six, the beginning of eighty six, end of eighty five, going into six, at their peak of success, where they were financially, critically, they had just had. Released Runaway Train, which had Oscar nominations. They had some big hits. They had signed Stallone to make Over the Top. They, they were, Canon was really on top of the world, and people were starting to believe in them. So they had all this money from a public stock offering. They had raised a lot of money that way. And they had a very large line of credit. So it's, it's very funny because you read articles in the late winter, early spring of 1986, where... Everything's everything's wonderful for Canon, for Golden Globe as a Canon. But a lot of these places state a number of, between their lines of credit and the money they had raised from stocks, they had about $300 million wow. at that point to spend, which is crazy because this is a company that sold Charles Bronson movies before they were made <laughs> and then spent right. whatever money they would make to make a Charles Bronson movie and like squeeze in a ninja film. <laughs> yeah. But with with the leftover cash. So Ken had three hundred million dollars and this was to make they had just signed uh Superman. They were gonna make a Superman movie. So they, a lot of these a lot of the people who had extended them these lines of credit expected these this money to go into these larger and larger productions. But that's where Canon does a very suppose a, a very canon thing a very foolish thing <laughs> that kind of has in in my opinion is probably the largest uh contributor to their downfall their downward spiral over the next few years is they spend 270 million dollars buying thorny mi 
which was this British British uh, film company that owned all these theaters, mainly because they wanted all of the theaters in the UK. They 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 owned a, a canon a, a chain of canon movie theaters in the UK. Wow! And okay. so they were buying out their competitor, but they also they wanted the production studios and what's I just wondering what a company that's known for making five million dollar one to five million dollar action movies starring Chuck Norris in the Philippines, why they need the studio space where Star Wars movies were shot. Why do you need a production (laughs) facility that huge and that high tech? So, and they spent $270 million and bought it in May of 1986. So this is two months after the U.S. release of uh, Highlander. Then things went south super fast. (laughs) For canon they they ended up being investigated by the sec Uh-oh. for yeah for fudging their numbers lying about how much their films had made and how much they were spending on their films and that investigation came up a lot of their credit was credit lines were pulled and then suddenly you have the company that had 300 million dollars just to blow on their slate set them up for a long long time you know, in March and April of 1986 to August of that same year being $100 million in debt and needing to raise that money somehow, which is crazy, crazy. But they they did that by... Basically, they, they pulled the plug on a lot of productions that were going on just because they couldn't pay the people to continue working on them. That's where you have... Masters Universe, the the Dolph Lundgren movie, they why they they had to stop production and couldn't film the full ending they wanted. That's you have the Charles Bronson movie Assassination, which they had another like you know whole whole final act of the movie to shoot, and Ken's like, no, we can actually give you like three days. That's all we can afford to pay. Wow. And, and why the movie ends with like this a, a very silly jet ski battle when they're supposed <laughs> to be planes crashing and people go, you know, just a big ends up just two stuntmen on like jet skis at the end <laughs> there's so canon canon got in trouble but they in the same time they just started taking all the assets they had gotten through it thorny mi and basically selling them any which way they could this is old movies that they had from their library putting them into every selling to every country that hadn't shown them yet Pushing every movie they had that hadn't been released in the theaters, which is where Highlander suddenly comes out getting pushed like into the UK and a lot of other countries being released finally with the Canon logo on it. And yeah, it was it was something that by the following year, like they had they had had to sell everything that they had gotten <laughs> by 1980s, everything they had bought for that in that $270 million that gave them Highlander and Thorny Mountain and everything else or a loss so it was a very very awful terrible business decision that really kind of gave them a fatal wound as a as a a company even though they continued to survive for another gosh seven years and in various incarnations but i that that was a very very (laughs) long-winded explanation of how Oh, Highlander ended up with the Canon logo on it. I hope that didn't didn't put anyone listening to sleep. Well, it certainly didn't put me to sleep because I was I I kind of I, that's why I was very excited to have you on this because watching this movie, 
it doesn't and I I don't want to say this insultingly, it doesn't have like the canon stink to it. Um It looks it looks too good to be a canon movie. There are a few yeah. good looking canon movies, but they're always almost always on a lower budget. Yeah. Um like so this movie was shot in Scotland, England, and New York City and especially like the training montage between Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery, you've got some beautiful, like, aerial shots of them, like, dueling on a mountain. Um, and, and, like I said, I, I have I have a lot of love for canon movies, but I could, yeah, this, this, now the pieces are starting to come together. I'm like, okay, because, I mean, this was kind of like a very ambitious movie. I mean, we've got a, an unproven screenwriter... Um, a director who uh, I think this was his first movie made in America, if I'm not mistaken, after Razorback. And I mean, some of the things behind the scenes are just, I mean, some of the things behind the scenes do kind of ring true of canon. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Lambert signed the contract to be Connor McLeod, not knowing how to speak English. I mean, <laughs> So that to me kind of seems like the kind of thing. I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm ragging on canon, but it, like that seems like the kind of thing they would they would they. Oh, the director really wants this guy. Uh, yeah, sign him to a contract. Then after the fact, they're like, well, he agreed to sign. He's on for the movie. Uh, did anyone check to see if this guy could speak English? Because turns out he can't. Uh, so his accent though, they got him a dialogue coach, and he actually. Uh, I mean. You can tell at times is certain there's certain di- lines of dialogue where it it seems a little unnatural, but I mean, uh, I, I didn't. If you told me this guy didn't speak English before starting this movie, I you know I wouldn't have believed that from the performance. Um, and Sean Connery was only on set; he filmed all his scenes in a week. And I, like I said, I'm most familiar with this movie because. Yeah, I kind of fell out with the series because it just kind of got a little weird. And like I said, if I this if this had been the first one that I saw, I probably would have hung on a little bit longer. But when I started doing the ser- uh, this uh, my podcast, uh, Highlander kept coming up, and I was like, um, "Well, I should probably because because up until then, what kept coming up." was what a mess Highlander 2 was. Uh, I, I've i never sat through Highlander 2. Um, have you? Have you? Is is Highlander 2 it's as bad? It's been a long time. Okay. It's been a long time. I, it, it, it's a movie that, gosh, like as a teenager, I remember being dis- supremely disappointed. <laughs> and if like, that was, that was, a, that was a time when it was, it, it was hard to disappoint me. Yeah. <laughs> any movie. It almost seems like the kind of movie, and I say this, I, I, I've, I've come across this a couple times, that I think that a lot of times, and I do have a point here, so just bear with me, Some sometimes horror remakes get thrown out into the theater, and they're they're pretty crappy, they're, they're pretty cheap, and... They get a lot of hate, 
but then what happens is that the original <laughs> starts getting brought back into the public eye and it's the, they're like they'll they'll be talking they'll be like well yeah that that black christmas or that nightmare on elm street remake was absolute trash but do you remember how good the original was and to me highlander uh-huh. highlander 2 which i have only seen parts of uh, and I know Sean Connery is in it. I'm not sure how because he's very explicitly killed in this movie. And I know that Highlander 2 kind of like bombed and it was kind of ripped to pieces. But I think that that when that happened, because this was 91, I believe. So this was about five years after Highlander was first released. I think the, the, the critical reappraisal kind of started. They're like, well, Wow, the, this movie is freaking awful, but I kind of want to go back and watch the original Highlander, and I'm kind of glad that I, I that came across this to cover on the show, because just on its own, just as a movie on its own, forget about all the sequels, forget about the TV shows, the comic books, the animes, this, is, this movie... Like you said, this is like a preteen boy, or uh, I guess a, a boy at heart's kind of dream. Because I was never one. I was never my. I have a younger brother who's big into Dungeons and Dragons and likes a lot of the sword and sorcery kind of stuff. Um, it was never really my kind of uh, movie. It was never the kind of movies that I sought out. But and I guess I kind of figured that that was what this movie is. But this movie, the fact that it takes place over thousands of years, uh, I, I, I can't I can't have anything but love for this movie. This movie is so much fun. The violence is brutal. The characters are interesting. Um, I, and I really am glad that I revisited this and, and kind of put a past all that previous bias that I might have had when I when I first watched it. Um, there's, there's a lot to love about this movie. And, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me that Gregory Wyden, you know, he kind of went on and, you know, he became a screenwriter. Uh, and he actually, not only did he create the Highlander series... But he created um, the Prophecy Horror franchise. And if you're not familiar with that, I would recommend sticking with the first one, which Gregory Wyden wrote and directed as a absolutely killer cast with Christopher Walken playing the Angel of Death. Uh, the sequels kind of go downhill. But the first one, I mean, so, I mean, this guy's... He's got quite the, quite the mind um, for interesting kind of uh, stories that actually have a lot. And you know, now that I'm thinking about it, the prophecy, which is very much based uh, a religious battle between angels and God and the devil and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And Highlander does have some kind of religious aspects to it, I would say, in a way. Um, it's almost like being a, a Highlander is kind of, it's, 
it's almost like a Christ character. And there's a scene in the movie when he's kicked at, they, it, you know, he's kicked out of his village. Initially, they want to kill him. They want to burn him. But they put him like in a stock hold. And it's like the, mm. to, the top half, the top half, half. Who am I fooling? I'm not. <laughs> the top, it's like the top half of a cross that he's like, it's almost like he's walking down, you know, walking like when uh, Jesus was led to the crucifixion. It's it, it, there's some, you know, some weird kind of re- religious ideology going on. But I mean, you could also put all that aside and just have fun with this movie as being um, a pretty kick ass action movie. And there's some really. I mean, and another thing that I again I don't want to I don't want to harper on on canon, but no, 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 no worries. There's there's a lot of character development, and there's some really touching moments in this movie. Like when <clears throat> when he finds out that he's not able to have a child, and you know Sean Connery tells him that you the greatest pain that he's ever experienced is losing three wives, and like you're best not to get involved. Um, so not only is there like weird religious uh, stuff going on somewhat, there's also an aspect to me of them almost being like vampires. And I only say that because there's a very specific way to kill a vampire and there's a very specific way to kill one of the immortals. Um, they live forever. Um, they, they'll see other people... Um, among them kind of grow old, but you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of as I'm pl- replaying the movie in my mind, these, yeah. these, these thoughts are just kind of coming to me. But um, yes, yeah, something that I really, I always marvel at when, I, whenever I revisit this one, and I, I, it's fun because I had just, again, it had been a few years, just like a couple, a couple months ago, I was my sitting with my wife and like oh let's let's watch highlander what's the last time you saw highlander <laughs> and then this i got i i revisited again just before we spoke but something that is so unusual especially with movies nowadays that so many are based on especially the big sort of speculative fiction style movies are based on existing properties or mm. other franchises or remakes where the audience already knows so much about these characters coming on and they spend a lot of time explaining it for the people who don't Highlander was a movie that has a lot of mythology and it just throws you into it and I I I really kind of love that about it you don't you don't get a lot you're learning it through these these flashbacks but even in this there's there's so much stuff the movie doesn't bother to explain like how many it, it never says I get and they they get into the stuff like later and like the series and the sequels and things like that. But in this film, just seeing this one alone, uh, removed from everything else, you don't know how many of these these immortals there are. You don't know when. You know they're all from different times. And of of, of course, Connor realizing, learning what he is. You you just wonder, like, where do these people like how 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 are they born? What how do they become these? these characters when did they stop being born because if they're if if they're eventually going to dwindle what is the gathering they just refer to the gathering right you can put it together yourself but um one of my favorites and that one of the one of the things that i kind of strikes me as 
silly about the movie and probably doesn't work as well for me but at the end when when he is the final one he he, he gets the prize and he suddenly can hear everybody's thoughts and he's mortal and he has a a quote to spectral sean connery at some point like you didn't tell me this and it's it's kind of i, I I'm, I'm thinking the same thing as somebody watching this movie i'm like oh i had no idea this was coming i actually never questioned what was going to happen when <laughs> when there was only one finally right. what what do they get what are their what are their their powers it's just i love i love that that you're just you're just along for the along for the ride with him you you <laughs> you you nothing is over explained in this thing if anything everything is under explained but there's something nice about that kind of refreshing and you don't you don't see that as much anymore when no if you are your original friend like franchise films like this right and and we find that we're given just enough so you're not left completely clueless but you i you, i like it instead of getting like an exposition there are a couple exposition dumps particularly from Sean Connery's character but that that's just kind of to fill in some of the blanks but i like that you you kind of get to know what an immortal is by having it like Christopher Lambert's character is kind of like your your in your proxy for as an audience member to find out like what what constitutes being this immortal be like i mean it sounds great you're never going to die you can breathe underwater you could you know your wounds will heal the only thing you that can't happen is to be decapitated but then i mean and that's what i like about this movie then they reflect on the bad stuff too they're like well you, you you're not going to be able to, he's like one of the scenes he's just talking he's like what do you want? And, and Christopher Lambert's like, I want to have a family. And then like Sean Connery's got to break the news. And was like, we cannot have kids. And I wouldn't even advise you having a wife because I mean the great, you're, you're going to watch her grow old and die right before your eyes. And you're, you're for, you know, immortal. And yeah, I kind of like that. We're given, we're we're given these little pieces along the way to kind of put the puzzle together together and then yeah i i kind of think i and i can't speak cuz i wasn't involved in the production or the screenwriting i i think they kind of wrote themselves into a corner i don't think they were really sure what to do at the very very end what i can speculate on is they certainly weren't thinking of a sequel or creating a franchise because this movie kind of ties everything up. And like I said, I'm almost, I'm almost after, after watching this movie twice in the past two weeks and really getting a, a, a newer appreciation for it. I kind of want to see what they did with Highlander two because I mean, where it's like after this ending, it's, where do you go from here? It seems as if you've kind of ended all your possibilities. And if I had to take a shot in the dark, I'm guessing that Highlander 2 doesn't involve the mortal life of Connor, <coughs> Connor McCloud. Uh, I'm just guessing there. Um, obviously, there's got to be... Again, you kind of write yourself into the corner. If there can be only one and then your movie ends with there being only one... Uh, 
that's great, but if the studio wants a sequel, it's kind of like, well, what do we do? So, um, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an interesting universe. Um, after rewatching the movie, my, my, I have a greater appreciation for just this movie on its own. And I'm, I'm glad that I revisited it. Revisited. I have such a tr- problem with that word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bizarre. Um, but it's it's interesting to me that they they kind of I mean obviously uh, they they managed to to squeeze out some more sequels, but um, I mean just on its own was Canon involved at all with the sequels? I'm I'm guessing mm. not. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, their involvement was really just dis- pretty much in the distribution and for a very set set amount of time really right they had to they had to start selling off all the all the assets and rights that they had to everything almost immediately after making that thornium i purchase when um when did they officially kind of like when what was the final death nail like the the absolute end like when did the the bottom finally drop out for good with canon well so not long after this once you get to the end of the 80s they were they again this is this is a very long involved wild wild story but the very short version is got they got bought out by a mobster (laughs) and kind of a a con artist huh and (laughs) He ended up continuing, he also bought MGM at the time, or he ended up in control of MGM, and there was a falling out between the cousins, Golan and Globus, so really the height of canon, I would say, ended when Menach and Golan left, and the cousins did not speak to each other again for a long time. But you still get some fun things, they made uh, competing Lombada films, they <laughs> they were both making making movies for a while after that. Jorgen oh, Globus great. became president of MGM. Really? Which is how long wild did to think? How long did that last for? Months, just a few. Oh, months. I was gonna say. Okay, that sounds about that sounds about right. Okay, all right. Long, long enough for him to take credit for Thelma and Louise, which he really doesn't deserve, but <laughs> he was technically there at the time uh, at the head of MGM. But uh, yeah, and then. Canon, it kept changing names, uh, changing the logo in different, like, subtle ways. There were Canon Pictures for a long time instead of Canon Films or the Canon Group. Uh, it's really the early 90s. Once you get past 1990, there are very few productions. At that point, it's it's them greenlighting, you know, any of the movies they can get you know, out of Michael Dudikoff's contract or Chuck Norris's contract, making these very, very cheap action films. But then also a lot of the films you get from them in those those last couple of years are movies that they had made and had been shelved, had gone, had sort of thought weren't, weren't worthy of releasing back when they first made them. Uh, but when they were just trying to raise any, any money they have, you have like a whole dump of movies in like 1993, <laughs> 94, that are just films that were some real, real duds that they'd been sitting on for 
several years at that point and just needed to get some product in the theaters to get some sort of the desperate sort of cash out of desperately trying to recoup something from nothing <laughs> yeah. yeah so i would say canon i mean probably i would say died 1990 but was on life support for another four years wow. <laughs> after that just just trying to just struggling to stay afloat so yeah i mean there's there's plenty on here um I mean, uh, just I, I I get a certain kind of feeling when certain movie lo logos come up, and for some reason, Canon always resonated with me. You kind of always, you, you, I mean, you could. It's the kind of movie that you you kind of just turn your brain off, and mm -hmm. you just enjoy the ride. And for the most part, I mean, regardless, I mean they've. They got some real. I mean, to me, they're they're classics. They're kind of like it's 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 different to be a, a classic and then to be a canon classic, I suppose. But I mean, uh, the American Ninja series, um, mm -hmm. Chuck Norris. Did they they did Invasion USA? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are big ones. Death the big hit. Uh, the Death Wish sequels. Um, I I have a particular affinity for Death Wish three because it's just so, and well, I was gonna say over the top, but then of course Canon also has over the top, um, which we'll have to. We'll, that's that's one of your your favorites from Canon. If I if my memories is correct. Yeah, absolutely. That one is a. Yeah, a movie that's a very special, special place in my heart, but just also has like such a, such a wild, long, long backstory that, <laughs> yeah, there. That's a movie I could I could talk anyone's ear off all night. <laughs> so, um, we should probably. I mean, anything else? Any final thought? What are some of your favorite scenes from Highlander? Some scenes that really yeah. really stick out to you. Well, you mentioned earlier that there. There's some surprisingly like emotionally effective moments. I so I, 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 not the ideal way to watch this movie. I'll admit here, but I to, to just to refresh myself this morning, I was rewatching chunks of it on the on the treadmill at the YMCA, <laughs> and I there, there's the moment when he is when he's on the he's in the stocks and he's getting banished and sent sent away from all the, the people in the, the village that he's known and loved and been this hero in. And his friend, like, basically lets him go, talks the mob into letting him, like, banishing him instead of burning him. And there's a line where he just says, so... I, his friend's like, go oh, while well, He's like, I will let's take it. It says, I won't forget you. Yeah. <laughs> he says this to his, his Highlander buddy. And I found myself, I'm like, I'm sitting there and like, I'm... Kidding. I don't know if this is like sweat from the from the the treadmill from from the exercise I was trying to get, or like I was getting a little misty eyed at that, that moment. But yeah, that, that that's just, that's just just a line that's a very small throwaway, but a moment you're like, wow, there there are like the other ones you mentioned, especially with um his, the moments with I'm trying to remember is it Heather is Heather his first. What, the the wife that he he buries yeah 
but lots of lots of emotional moments there that something that i mean i i love i love clancy clancy brown in this film he's so good he is so good yeah and he's someone who's who's just such a fantastic villain there there but there are some moments where it's just he ones that stick out to me with him is when the kurgan is he he meets with uh connor in the in the church yes yes yeah oh just like when he's just her basically harassing and terrorizing these the priests and the nuns licks the one's hand and then he's he quotes the the neil young song and sort of just like spins around and does a little dance and you're like there's no way like there's no way these lines were that are this like performance was nearly this awesome like on the page it wasn't i i did do some research (laughs) he did improvise a lot of that that particular scene and yeah i mean and that that brings me you just brought up two things um that the way that this movie is paced I, i him not knowing that he's immortal really makes that scene where he's being banished from the village so emotional because he doesn't know that he can't be killed at that point. He thinks that they're really... I mean, little does anyone know if they did try to burn him, nothing would happen. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. he doesn't know that at the point. So, like, the mystery being unraveled slowly is what really... I think it's just a very smart screenplay... And what is kind of a throw a throwaway line is um, the only place that we we don't do battle is in a holy ground, um, which is kind of you know, and some movies would just be a, a throwaway line leads to this very intense yet darkly comedic scene in the church later on, and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just there's a lot of little things about this movie that just make it w- just really click for um for me. And of course, I uh, you brought it up earlier, but the climax of this movie, wow. Mm-hmm. So good. <laughs> yeah, the it's just a fantastic fantastic battle and just like just just an excellent just set to like set to have but to have that sign to be able to use that um and the way they have that's that's another like works i think so well because i guess clancy brown is so scary yeah (laughs) the the moves he's doing like the the sword fighting is like they i know they both him and uh and christoph for uh trained with a Swordmaster for a long time leading into that, but like, there's some like just some cr- weird inhuman stuff that he like does that is part of his performance. I'm like, this is a natural sword fight, but when he's just like spinning, almost <laughs> like a lawnmower blade, like taking out the uh, the posts that are holding up this sign, it's just it's so crazy and there's a there's a moment also there where he sort of just sinks underwater yeah yeah <laughs> he spins while he's doing it and it's almost like a i don't i don't know what it makes me think of but it's just such a weird inhuman like choice in the performance but it sticks it's effective it's it makes you think and again when 
it really it really clicks at the at the end because when you see him sort of near the end of his the, this final battle he has the black contact lenses in yeah and he almost looks reptilian or something you're right then you're yes. thinking like okay all of these this just weird performance it's making me want to go back and like maybe i'll watch highlander again tonight like, <laughs> like with that in mind because maybe yeah he's not entirely human that's it's yeah there's 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 something going on every i like the fact that all we're, we're not introduced to too many of the immortals in this particular movie i lord knows how many are introduced in the later movies but they all have like particular character traits and i i had to say though the first a mortal that Christopher Lambert comes across in the parking garage. Now, the way that this guy acts, this seems straight out of a canon movie. He, like, first of all, he has the sneak on him, but he decides to introduce himself. And they start dueling, and then this guy, they must have just loved this guy's stunt double because he does... <laughs> More backflips than I've ever seen anybody do. He backflips down like an entire row of parked cars. And then like it cuts yeah, back and he's yeah. ba- like, this guy doesn't walk. He just freaking backflips everywhere. It's so crazy. <laughs> <It's so bad. laughs> yeah. And, and, but like, I like that they all have their little personalities. And I like the fact that, um, I mean, despite the fact that he was only on the, the, the set for a week, like, you could the, the the chemistry between Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery is kind of like the protege and the elder. Um, it, it has real weight. Like they do have very good chemistry, and I it was just upon this this last rewatch that this I don't know why, but all of a sudden. I start having, and again, this might sound weird, but I do have a point, so bear with me. I started having bizarre Batman Begins flashbacks. The training sequences between Bruce Wayne and Ra's al Ghul, there's the scene that, like, you need to mind your your footing or mind your setting. There's a scene where um, they're dueling, and Christopher Lambert thinks he's got one up on Sean Connery, but it turns out that he had cut a tree the whole time, and a tree kind of falls over on him. So, like, this, you got this weird training that kind of reminiscent, reminded me of that. And then later in the movie, his, like, relationship with his secretary very much reminds me of an Alfred and Bruce Wayne kind of relationship. <laughs> Like, it's it, so, like, it, it, am I completely off base here, or do you kind of see where I'm... No, 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 I, I totally see where you're coming from. It didn't occur to me, but that's, yeah, you, you've, you're, you're, you're on to something. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, we- like, the way that him and his secretary talk, it's very kind of uh, Alfred Pennyworth, Bruce Wayne kind of talk, and she says that, I mean, she says something that totally, like, Alfred, if he, if he hasn't told Bruce Wayne, he probably would have at some point. He's like, you look lonely. <laughs> it's, like, that's the kind of thing that you get from just, like, having, like, that's the kind of natural dialogue that you have because you've established a relationship over years with this person. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's so many little things to, to like, to, like, really sink your teeth into with this movie and I know it's um now it's now very very easy to get 
um, the director's cut. But something that I did come across uh, in my research was that initially uh, the 116-minute version that is now commonly uh, available was re- was released only in the UK, and about five minutes were trimmed for the US. Um, I'm not sure exactly what was trimmed because the only version of, of it that I've sat all the way through has been th- this version. And for a, for a movie that's, I mean, for it, it doesn't overstay its welcome at 116 minutes. It's really, it's very well paced. Um, and I, I, I just have to mention this because it's kind of a scene that doesn't really need to be there, but I really kind of liked was one of the flashbacks when he rescues this little girl from Nazis in World War Two. That's actually one that's actually probably the biggest change. Biggest scene that's cut from the shorter version. Really? Okay. Um please yeah. please uh if you have any knowledge about that, I'd love to hear about it. I I mean I don't I don't know offhand the the reason it was it was cut um, other than perhaps it's just they wanted to make it shorter and keep it more relevant to the two time periods of the you know early Scotland and modern times, just not not confuse things. Maybe they didn't want to confuse things more, but the cut is kind of kind of heartbreaking. Cause I I do yeah I I love that scene and it has one of my favorite lines when he. And the girl asks something, or you should be dead, or why? Why aren't you yeah, dead? Yeah, yeah. Like whispers, he says, "Oh, it's a kind of magic." And I'm like, oh, I mean, yeah, that's such so good, such a great line. See, I'm glad. Yeah, well, I'm. I could see. I understand from a studio perspective. If you're gonna cut something, that's the kind of scene you you, you cut because, like, it doesn't. But to me, it just kind of helps cement his character, and. Mm-hmm. Like a little scene like that makes me want to root for him so much more, because you could see that this guy's got a great heart, and I mean he's he plays the role so well because he's very very confused by all the circumstances that first happened when he's first stabbed and he survives and you know people were basically mourning him already even though he hadn't died in battle like they were basically mourning him as if he were dead because they just assumed. He was dead and like his confusion and then kind of developing this friendship with Sean Connery. And then um, he's actually not there when when Connery gets beheaded. But I can only, you know, he's there for the aftermath. And then like this kind of grudge between him and Clancy Brown that just grows. And um, there's so many little things that I just love about this movie. The fact that there's a very funny line where... Um, Connery and and Clancy Brown are fighting, and he says something like, "He's like, well, I could see my cut improved your voice," and it's just like <laughs> it's just very kind of like, uh, you know. So I I could see why they would want to bring back <laughs> Sean Connery for for the sequel. I again, I don't know, have any knowledge of how or why it happens. I just know that he's on the poster, so man's got to be in the movie somewhere. But I mean, if if you're someone like me, that I it, this movie deserves another shot. If you haven't watched it in a while, revisit it 
it's it's well worth your time it's it's beautifully shot for a relatively low budget and considering that this director um was kind of inexperienced this was only his second movie and i do recommend checking out uh going back and checking out razorback from the same director and i also recommend from the same writer um his only theatrical uh directorial movie that he ever did was the first prophecy movie where uh he's got a killer cast he's got christopher walken he's got eric stoltz and he's got vigo mortison playing the devil so if you haven't checked out the prophecy, check that out. Um, and uh, yeah, Austin, final thoughts for for Highlander. Something that is, uh, I, I think, it, worth worth just pointing out as a thought too is that that it's it's a movie that I think it has a little bit of something for so many different types of audiences a little bit for something for everyone i mm-hmm. guess you could say because it does it has this this action it has science fiction elements it's got these scottish highlander like battles of this period war war film it's got romance it's got a very tender romance in the middle and it's yes. got a ton of comedy which is something you don't initially think of even if you've seen highlander a bunch of times there are lots of very funny lines and even moments of just like outright slapstick. I think of the duel where he's drunk and he's doing the duel in the yes, 1800s. Yes, I forgot. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. This kind of movie you talk about, you forget these little scenes. That duel scene is straight up hilarious. It's like it's mm-hmm. it belongs in like a silent like Buster Keaton kind of slapstick thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, this it's, it's movies. Yeah, it's got so many elements to it, and I think a lot of a lot of movies that try to do cover too many bases, to try to do too many things, they don't work. But for some reason, Alander does, <laughs> and maybe just because it's so fun, and it's that that's maybe maybe that's why I'm I'm not sure, but it is it is a and uh, a very fun fun movie and one that i've 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 loved for a long time i mean i actually oh i'm sorry oh, god please i said i'd be i'd be absolutely remiss if i didn't mention this but there's a fantastic book for anybody who's a highlander like fan it's by jonathan melville it's called a kind of magic and it's just a very in-depth book about the making of the first highlander movie but one of my all-time favorite it's like in-depth histories which is just a single film and it's been years now since i've i've read it i wish i wish i had read it more more recently but it's a fantastic book and if you if you love highlander <laughs> go grab that if you if you listen to this podcast and are interested in highlander want to know more about it grab grab john melville's book before you step anywhere near mine because <laughs> you'll get more highlander information from that it's it's a fantastic fantastic book um yeah like you said this is this movie does the more i think about it it does it covers so many and so many genres which i love about cult movies is that they cover so many genres and they cover them well and the the material is handled it's just handled very 
expertly, especially in a movie like this, you got to figure they're juggling a lot of different stuff going on here. Like you said, we're we're talking about uh, a huge mythology of of people of immortal people. We're we're not just dealing with like the first battle in the in the Scottish Highlands. We're dealing with modern New York City. Yeah, I mean, you got cops investigating what's going on. I mean, there's so much going on in this movie. Plus, they're interspliced, like you said, with some very comedic scenes, like that duel. The duel scene is great. The scene where, where he, when he saves that little girl is just touching. Um, I mean, it's there's so many good things about this movie. Um, but I mean, yes, check out Mr. Melville's book if you're interested more about Highlander. But please, um, Austin, be, while, while we're wrapping up here, uh, please tell us how people can get a hold of the Canon Film Guide Volumes 1 and 2 available now. Yeah, you know, so they are both available now at this point anywhere you can buy, buy books. Um, Bear, Manor Media, Bear Manor Media is the publisher for both available through their website, but of course you can also go to Amazon or order it through your local bookstore. Uh, anything else coming up for you in the future? Are you doing any appearances, anything like that, that you would like to promote? Well, I am hoping to. I released the first volume. Uh, had, the, had the misfortune of releasing two months into the pandemic mm. and back in the uh, mid-summer of 2020. So did not really get to do anything. So I'm very excited with this one uh, to get to do some in-person some events, some screenings of canon movies, and along with... Q&As and things like that. So that uh, the, a lot of those are in development right now. And if you if you if you if you give me a follow on either Twitter at, at Canon Film Guide or Facebook, the same same handle, uh, I'll be posting those when 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 I have that news ready to go. All the details up there. So I will have those complete details in the episode description. Please give Austin a follow and. Uh, keep up to date if you're a fan of canon films or just kind of like 80 cinema in general i these are the these are the books for you i mean what did you say this is a thousand a thousand pages <laughs> this second volume yeah yeah oh, between, wow. it's, you've got about so, almost 1700 pages between the the first two two books combined so that's amazing. It's a lot of a lot of canon information <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there so we got to get the word out that you know the canon f- film fans we're gonna have to have you back on the on the show a, a later this year and keep us up to date on uh, appearances and news with your show until then and of course follow austin just hit us with your twitter handle one more time so people know where to find you it's at canon film guide Easy to remember, and if for some reason you've forgotten 10 seconds later, it will be in the episode description. Please give him a, a follow. If you're inclined to, I would highly recommend you check out his books, and if you like our conversations, I've got a lot of good feedback about the last appearance that you did. Um, definitely lots of canon movies to talk about here on the Cole Film Companion. Oh, I'm always ready. I'm always ready. <laughs> um, I'm thinking that we might have to do a Stallone double feature featuring your favorite, Over the Top, and one of my favorites, Cobra. Oh, absolutely. That's... It's a perfect pairing. So uh, stay tuned to that in the future. Thank you again, Austin, for giving me your time this evening. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
Oh, it was my pleasure, sir. Um, love having you on the show. Love having guests like you that can to fill in the uh, fill in the gaps here in in the, in my knowledge because I had no idea that this is much more a, a canon adjacent movie than it is a, a canon movie. So thank you for stepping up to the plate and uh, knocking another an, another one right out of the right out of the park, as they say. So. I Thank you to the listeners here at the Cult Film Companion Podcast. My name has been Chris, and we will have another episode with some juicy cult classics coming up real soon. Take care.